mention the word sin, what comes to your mind? Serious wrong things that you might end up in prison for. I, I think that's probably a, a fair comment. I think many people in our uh, city, in our culture, think, yeah, sins are really big things that everybody knows are wrong. Things that really kind of evil people might do. I don't know if anybody thought of streets ice cream. Streets ice cream made a version of the Magnum which they called Sin. They called it Sin. And I think that is another way that people in our culture look at Sin these days. It's kind of naughty but nice. Sin is, you know, it's not that bad, it's a bit naughty. But it's nice. And these Christians keep wanting to tell me that it's, I shouldn't be indulging in it. I shouldn't be eating that chocolate ice cream with the double chalk coating or whatever it was. So sin has been kind of played down and I, I suppose the, the essence of it is, is often said as, you know, you're disobeying the rules. Sin is breaking the rules. But then the question becomes, whose rules? And what if, you know, your rules are different to my rules? So the whole idea of of, of sin has been weakened and diminished and as we talk about the, the topic even within the Christian church giving a definition of sin um, that is as serious as God would have us uh, understand is not an easy thing how do we look at sin from, the, from God's point of view sin is no small thing and there are many passages of scripture that speak of the seriousness of sin. And we need to understand and appreciate just how God views sin. And the Apostle Peter wrote um, in his first letter, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's a good definition of sin. Sin is anything that wages war against your soul. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Sin is not just a passive thing. Sin is like a, like a virus, like an infection. It wants to take over. It is waging war against your very spiritual existence. So what seem to many just to be kind of innocent pleasures or even um, positive attributes, the view of scripture is that sin is tearing people's lives apart. Sin is waging war against your soul and people's lives are the casualties. So as we look at these seven deadly sins, we're looking at really seven behaviours that will destroy your soul. These seven sins, there's not a kind of list in the Bible to say these are the specifically you know, nasty ones that you need to be aware of. Uh, there are other lists 
of sins, uh, as Robbie read for us, to us from Galatians, there are, there are many um, types of sin. So why the seven, these ones, the seven deadly sins? The Bible doesn't use that language. Uh, but about 1,600 years ago, the church ad adopted this as a strategy to deal with sin. So Gregory the Great was the, the leader who's attributed to this, but there were other lists of sins and, and um, you know, ways that you could deal with sins that were going around. Well, he distilled it to these seven. And since then, the church has used these uh, seven sins as a kind of pattern for dealing with all sin. And as we go through them, I'm sure you'll, you'll be surprised at just how up-to-date they are and uh, how, uh, how we cover the gamut of sin. So our purpose in these next seven weeks is to identify these sins that would destroy us and then to work out strategies, spiritual um, disciplines and practices that are going to help us to actually put these deadly sins to death. And this, as it was in Jesus' day, as it was in Gregory the Great's day, is a task which flies in the face of public opinion. And, uh, you know, in our context, these specific sins are often seen in a positive light rather than a negative light. A little bit of greed is good. It's not lust. It's just an expression of my sexual drive. That's a healthy thing. Well, pride is perfectly valid, isn't it? If you don't have pride in your own achievements, who will? Who will recognise you? Envy. Well, you've got to be a bit careful with envy, but envy can actually motivate you to work harder because you want to be the same like other people. So working harder, that can't be bad. And angry, who doesn't, anger, who doesn't have the right to be angry? Now you're thinking about sloth and gluttony, but on holidays, what's wrong with just kicking back on the lounge, doing nothing and waiting for the smorgasbord restaurant to open, the all-you-can-eat uh, dinner. Sin is subtle. Sin is very subtle. And so often Satan distorts good things. Good things that God has given to us. And he turns them in on us with the purpose of wanting to destroy our souls. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death. That's strong language, isn't it? Kill off these things. And then there's a list of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, um, greed. The thing that we need to focus on is not so much the names of the sins, but the instruction to put them to, to, put them to death. It's a command. So it's something that in the power of God's spirit we are actually able to do. We're actually able to do that. So today we look at the sin of pride. And I think uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the champion uh, of pride. 
uh, the story that Bob read for us, Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the, the known world. And if you know the story uh, from the book of, of Daniel, you know that King Nebuchadnezzar actually put a, up a gold statue and called all the people to worship him as a god. Uh, you don't hear of many people calling themselves uh, gods uh, in, in our day and age. But if you go to the MoMA Museum in Tasmania, there's a car, car park, Mr God and Mrs God. That's the, that's the, the kind of tongue-in-cheek attitude. Oh, I forget the guy's name, the Tasmanian who... <laughs> what's his name? can't remember but you all know who I'm talking about well he's got his, his car park is, is, got, is called God he's got Nebuchadnezzar syndrome what's Nebuchadnezzar syndrome he's walking along the ramparts of the city of Babylon and he's saying to himself how great this city is he's reflecting on his own power and majesty his own godlike abilities and everything that he controls. And at that very time, this dream that Daniel had explained to him actually took shape and became a reality. Now you'd think that he would have been warned. What was the dream? The dream was that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is like a big tree, a huge tree, and all the birds and all the animals and all the living things are protected and provided for under this tree. And what happens? God sends a messenger from heaven and chops down the tree. Puts a, a band around the tree so it's not completely dead, but chops down the tree. And we are told that that is what God is going to do to Nebuchadnezzar if he doesn't deal with his pride. If he doesn't uh, acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth. That's how Daniel puts it. And he gives them to whoever he wants. God is the king, not Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one in control. And because of his lack of pride, even though he was warned, this very prophecy, uh, the words of the dream come to pass. And <clears throat> the command is to, to leave the stump of the tree, which is his kingdom, that will be restored to him God says, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, he believed his own press. And that's when you've got to start to worry, isn't it? And we say, yes, well, that was, <clears throat> that was his problem. But Nebuchadnezzar's problem of pride can just as easily be our problem. God warns us that we are not king of our own lives. But what do we do? We act as if we are. We control ourselves. You know, we want to think we're the masters of our own destiny. We do all these things without any thought of God. But how the mighty has fallen in Nebuchadnezzar's day and how the mighty can fall even still in our day. Uh, Saint Augustine, one of the greatest uh, biblical thinkers and theologians, 
uh, of the church, pointed out that pride is the very sin that drew Satan away from God. We're aware of that, but Augustine says Satan's pride meant that he would rather be on the top of the list in hell rather than it also ran in God's kingdom. Isn't that a frightening thought? His pride had convinced him that he was better off to be the number one in hell than just another angel in God's heaven. And Thomas Aquinas, another um, theologian, said this. He said, Inordinate self-love is the cause of every sin. Inordinate self-love. So putting ourself on the pedestal is the cause of every sin. The essence of sin is that it breaks relationships. That firstly, our relationship with God is broken as sin separates us from God. But then our relationships with each other are broken. And there's no clearer place where we see this than in the sin of pride. The ultimate end of pride is loneliness. Who is Nebuchadnezzar walking with on the, on the balustrades of the city? Himself. He doesn't trust anybody else. You see, he's, he's come to this position and it's a self-imposed isolation. Anyway, who wants to be a friend with someone who's constantly telling you how good they are and you know, all the things he's achieved and his might and his majesty and his power? Who wants to be friends with people who keep you know, dropping into the conversation their own achievements or their family's achievements? Nothing wrong with thinking about those things, but when other people want to tell you about their family, you're not interested. You don't ask any questions about how other people's families are going, you just want to tell them about yours, about your achievements. And people will walk away. The sin of pride is an isolating sin. It destroys relationships. It can stem from a sense of insecurity. We're desperate to build self-esteem. Desperate to be seen as somebody. Our identity can be tied up with this idea of, of what we've achieved. And even those who have achieved great things, that has come out of a sense of insecurity. We need to look at the example of Jesus, don't we, who never suffered from insecurity because he found his identity in God. Jesus didn't commit the sin of pride, but he was certainly tempted to commit the sin of pride when Satan actually tempted him about his relationship with his father. That was where Satan really had his greatest attempt of, of, convicting, of convincing Jesus to show who he was, that he was his father's son. But he didn't, he didn't give in. He didn't suffer from the sin of pride. And he gives us an example then of how to deal with the temptation to pride. So how do we 
put it to death? How do we deal with pride in our life? There are two basic habits that we can cultivate that will help us to kill off pride. And they're, they're part of our Christian life. The first one is confession. Admitting to God the truth about yourself and particularly admitting our individual sins and confessing them before him. Now I want to tell you, if you read any How to Succeed in Life books, they won't start with coming clean and confessing your sins. How could that be helpful? How could that be helpful? But if we confess our sins on a regular basis, that's a surefire way to avoid pride. <clears throat> While we're making a conscious effort to put our finger on our own sinful behaviours, then there is no room for us to continue to be our own little demigods. There is no room for us to keep thinking that we are the best. So how do you go with self-confession? Are you quick to mention your failures and the wrong things that you've done? It's worth taking the test, isn't it? It's a difficult thing. But let me ask you, who do you listen to? Who is the source of authority and truth in your life? Would you rather tell other people how it is than actually change your point of view from somebody else telling you how it is? And what is it that you mostly talk about? Do you talk about yourself yourself? things that you like to do, the achievements you have, what your grandchildren are doing or your children? Do you mostly talk about yourself or do you mostly ask people about themselves? If you're asking people about themselves rather than high, you know, blowing your own trumpet, you will kill off pride. Do you spend your time thinking about correcting the mistakes of other people without ever realising or admitting that you have any mistakes yourself. It's an easy one to fall into, isn't it? And finally, do you self-examine, identify your faults, and then bring them to God for forgiveness? Do you do that any other time than on Sunday morning. You see, forgiveness is something that we walk in as we bring before God our own faults and failures and confess them to him and receive his forgiveness and his restoration. There's no room for pride when we're in the process of recognising our sin and having God assure us again of our forgiveness. So a little self-examination, a little regular uh, self-examination of our sins and confession of those sins to God leaves no room for pride. So how are you going with confession? That's the first thing. The second way to destroy pride is through 
service, through serving other people. When we actively get involved in uh, the lives of other people, when we do something which we would normally think we wouldn't do, because it's a bit, bit below us, when we get involved in some of the, the mess and, and, and needs of others, that has the marvellous effect of helping us to forget about ourselves and our own agenda. As we serve another people, sorry, as we serve another person, we're focused on their needs rather than on our own status. Our eyes are lifted up to see another and to see their need. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Putting other people first. And Jesus humbled himself and served. That was the pattern of his life. And we know that the most famous incident was when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. But have you really thought about that? Have you really thought about that? Why did he wash the disciples' feet? Because nobody else would. It was supposed to be the lowest servant in the house who, who washed the visitors' feet. And no one wanted to take that role. No one wanted to humble themselves in that way. And think about it. This is, this is Palestine. This is dusty, dry, you know, dirty um, leather sandals that you've been sweating in as you walk all day and it turns into that little black kind of mucky stuff between your toes. And it's not very nice at all. That's what Jesus washed off. See, he wasn't just, he wasn't just kind of trying to, to, to give a, a practical life lesson. He was doing what needed to be done because he was a servant. And he said that we should follow in his steps. So if you fill your time with yourself, then you will have that propensity to, to have the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome as you be, think of yourself as more and more important and become more and more proud. But if you fill your, your life with rather than expecting people to serve you, to serve others, if you cultivate the role of a servant, the, hu the humble place of a servant, then there is no end to how much the Lord will use you as someone who has been freed from pride. So as we finish, are you realistic about your own sins and failures? And are you prepared to bring them to, to the Lord in confession? <clears throat> and have you trained yourself to look at Christian life at every event as an opportunity for you to serve someone? Even coming to church to help someone to feel welcomed or cared for or appreciated. Confession and service will put pride to death. I want to finish with this story that I uh, discovered during the week. <clears throat> it's a story of Charles Finney. don't know if you've heard of him. He was uh, an 1800s uh, evangelist. He was actually a lawyer by trade and uh, he was involved in preaching in New York in the 1830s and uh, there was a great revival that happened and, and Finney uh, spoke to thousands of people and called them to repentance and people would come forward. 
Many lawyers came to hear him because they were his, his colleagues. And one night, the Chief Justice of New York came and sat at the back and listened to Finney preaching. And he became convinced that the gospel was true. Then the, he says, the first question that came to his mind was, will I go forward like the ordinary people? He could have just thought, well, next time I see Finney, I'll call him aside and say, you know, I believe that. I want to be a Christian. What do you just walk down with the ordinary people? And he reflects, something within me um, made me think that it would be inappropriate to do so because of, the, of uh, my prestigious position. But as I sat there thinking, I thought, why not? I'm convinced of the truth. Why should I not, like every other person, go forward? And apparently, <clears throat> while Finney was still preaching, he came from his seat and went around the back and tugged on his coat. And he said, Mr Finney, if you will call for, for people to come forward in repentance, I will come. Finney stopped his sermon and just gave a call. People came forward. There was an outbreak of faith amongst the lawyers of New York. And within the next um, five years or so, 100,000 people had come to faith through the ministry of, of Finney in that church. We don't know how much uh, that would have changed if the Chief Justice had just done, gone privately. But what we do know is that if you put aside your pride, then God will use you in ways that you can never imagine. If you can deal with the sin of pride, God will use you. So are we up for it? Confession and service. Let's pray and ask God to help us.